Welcome back to Foster.Minnesota's Let's Talk, a podcast that brings you valuable resources for prospective and current adoptive and foster families, as well as professionals. My name is Chris, and I'm an education coordinator at Foster.Minnesota. And I'm Sunny, also an education coordinator here at FAM. Today's episode is a racial identity journey. Chris, who do we have with us today? Well, Sonny, we are happy to have Isaac Etter and his mother, Julie Etter, as our guests. Isaac is an adoptee and social entrepreneur. Isaac was transracially adopted at the age of two. He's the founder of Identity, where he works on re-imaging post-placement support for adoptive and foster families. With his unique insight, Isaac has been able to curate impactful discussions about race in America, where everyone learns to value each other and their experience while learning together. Isaac believes these conversations are crucial for child welfare professionals and adoptive foster parents, which I fully agree with. Julie Etter is a mother to five. Her oldest and youngest are adopted with three bio children in the middle. She's passionate about equipping children with tools to become lifelong learners and thinkers. So welcome, Isaac and Julie. Isaac, it's so great to have you back. And so good to meet you, Julie. Oh, yeah, great. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. Excited to be back. Yeah, so what have the two of you been up to these days? Oh, a whole bunch of stuff. Um, so first off, uh, we've been filming a documentary. Um, that's going to be on my story, but it, it incorporates uh, everybody. It has uh, the whole family throughout it. Um, and then we've also been doing a podcast together called Inside Transracial Adoption, which is going to start in January. Wow, that's pretty cool. So we have some competition, Sonny. Oh my gosh. So you guys can teach us a few things, I'm sure. So. We're new to it. We won't be competition for a while. Yeah, we're, we're finding our flow. Yeah, but you guys have Isaac, so that's the advantage because yes. I'm old. So <laughs> he told me it had to have a Kardashian vibe. And so I don't know if I can achieve that for him or not. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The real, the real lives of adoption or something like that. Keep it up with adoption. You know yes. what I mean? It has to have that edge to it. It's got some edge. <laughs> I love it. Well, you know, adoption is edgy. So is. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a name for the podcast? Oh, it's called Inside Transracial Adoption. Okay. Um, and so, it, you know, it's the inside look at our lives, uh, what everything we went through. You kind of get to hear both of our perspectives on everything uh, from the journey to my parents even adopting uh, to what I felt like as a kid. Um, and each episode covers just like kind of a different topic. And it's fun because we just talk. It's not scripted. So yeah. we reveal things to one another that that we've never heard each other say before. So it's really raw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Wow. Remember? What's that? I said Kardashian vibe, remember? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty brave because adoption comes with so many emotions. And mm -hmm. um, yeah. wow, and that you explore them from a parental as well as a child standpoint. That's just. That blows my mind. I'm going to have to listen to it. To sidetrack a little bit too. So it starts in January and is it going to be weekly? So it starts in November. So it'll be um, monthly starting in November. Okay. Um, and so an episode a month, 
Um, and it, it's going to also have video to it too. So you can watch it on YouTube if you want to just kind of see us dialogue. Um, and then we'll also have, you know, we, we have a habit, both me and my mom have a habit of tangents and, you know, talking and, and all of those things. Um, and so we'll be putting a bunch of exclusive content and things that you won't find on the podcast uh, on our identity community called Thrive. Um, and so we'll we'll have a bunch of stuff out there for families. If you really like the podcast and you want to see all the stuff that doesn't make the final cut, we'll also have options for that. That is super cool and exciting. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm sure they can find it wherever they people, people listen to their podcasts, right? Absolutely. It'll be on all the streaming things. And I believe, uh, let me see if I can get the date so, I, so you can have it officially. It's going to be November 10th is going to be the first episode. Um, and so, yeah, we're really excited. I think it's going to be really cool. And uh, it's something different too. Uh, kind of how uh, Suni kind of touched on. Um, it's kind of, it's a, it's a, it's a weird concept. Like it was weird to do the first, we did the first two episodes already. And it's, it's a weird concept to do because you really just don't know what you're walking into or what you're trying. Um, but I think that's also kind of the point. The point is that uh, we have a lot of families in the space who are having all kinds of experiences and all kinds of feelings um, that are often not talked about. Um, and I think we have a unique advantage here as adoptive parent and adoptee kind of turned adoption professional to hold space for maybe some of those more dynamic and vulnerable conversations without it becoming um, tense um, or maybe overly sensitive or, or, or too much to handle. Um, we, I've been in this space for a couple of years now having these hard conversations with parents. Um, and so to have it with my own mom, though different and, and weird at times, um, I think there's a kind of a layer of, of um, skin built up from doing yeah. this work for so long. Yeah, I was going to say, you and I have been having so many hard conversations for so long that mm. a trust has, you know, we, we've we've tried to get Isaac to believe that he can say anything. Nothing's off the table. There's nothing he can say that's going to push us away. And so we've done that long enough that I think it's that we can be safe doing this. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I'll let you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just we'll that live with this. <laughs> it's right before Thanksgiving. So what perfect timing. Right. <laughs> Something to enjoy over the holidays. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, let's get into uh let's get into it. Mm-hmm. So um how would the two of you recommend these transracial families discuss bias? and racial identity. Mm-hmm. Do you want to kick us off, Mom? Oh, I was going to let you go. <laughs> 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 um, uh, first of all, so so how do we recommend people talking about it? That's the question, right? Um, first, what I just said, like anything can come on the table. Like um, we've had to really work hard to not take personal the things that we say to one another. And so when Isaac tells me something is hurting or, um, you know, this is what it feels like to be black in America, um, I've had to come to the conclusion that even if I don't understand that, I still believe him. And so it's okay for him to say whatever he wants to say. And I think getting to the point of your uh, adopted kids being able to talk about racism, to be able to talk about bias, racial bias, um, 
and that they can trust you that you're not going to lose your mind when they say something, <laughs> you know, that, that everything is okay and everything is safe to say. Yeah. And I think starting with that foundational piece of trust is important. Um, and one thing, you know, that I often say along with that is that like the earlier that trust comes, the better, right? So the earlier you create that space for your child to um, talk about weird things that may be race related, to talk about bias they may experience, um, the better. Um, and, you know, in, in our experience, um, I think the framework for what that is wasn't there until I was older. Um, but we live in a different world now, uh, especially with the Internet. Um, and so not only is it um, not only is it I think I think racism is more um, seen and validated now than ever before. Um, whereas when I was growing up, it was kind of in, in that in between of colorblind era. And so, you know, we spent time in a ton of spaces where the idea of racism was kind of ignored. So if something racist did happen, it wasn't recognized as such. And so um, I think nowadays with uh, with a culture where we're actually um, recognizing these things that happen and how bias affects us, it is really important to have these conversations and create the space for your child. Well, and I think what Isaac, when you hit on the internet was huge, you know, as parents, we're all prepared that, you know, <laughs> you got to have the talk with your kids early because if you don't, they're going to get on the internet and figure it all out. And nobody wants your kids to figure that out from the internet, right? <laughs> and I did not realize that in not educating Isaac and not having talks about racism, that he was actually going to the internet. We didn't know that. And so, you know, that's a huge change in my parenting that I would make at this point. But I would tell people, you know, anything that you want your kids to find out from you, anything that you need to advocate for them for, make sure you're doing that because they'll figure it out from the internet. <laughs> so, yeah. No, that's good advice. So what would you say to parents who will not budge? So there are still many parents that are colorblind or refuse to acknowledge racism or, uh, you know, fill in the blank. So what would you say to them who won't budge? And yet they're spite in doing so, they're still hurting their adoptee. Right. Yeah. Um, Isaac had a mentor, and I think he still meets with him occasionally through his uh, upper teen, early 20 years, that my husband, it was a black male that my husband and I ended up building a friendship with him and his wife as well. And he just told us one day, he said, I'm going to tell you something in all truthfulness. If you want a relationship with Isaac when he's 30, believe what he's telling you. Stop, <laughs> stop trying to put your spin and your story and your experience because you have not and will never experience what he's experiencing. So if you want a relationship when he's 30, um, stop trying to argue about these things with him. And that sent my husband and I on a journey of reading Malcolm X and all the MLK and all the current you know, books and articles and podcasts on race in America and things like that. And really opened an incredible world to us. But that's what I would say to people, you know, keep keep burying your head in the sand and you probably won't have a relationship with them when they're 30. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's probably the best advice, uh, you know, you could get. It's important. Is, yeah, there's nothing else to say other than that. I think that she kind of nailed it. Absolutely. Well, what would you say to the kids, though? Okay, so say the parents are burying their heads. 
what would you say to comfort the children? So they're going to leave at 30 and they're no longer going to have a relationship. But what would you say to those who have left? Um, I think that's one to kind of echo off the parent one, because I think it's I think one one thing that's really important to remember here is that it is the responsibility of an adopting parent to factor a lot of these things in before they adopt. Right. So this is this is what you factor in before you transracially adopt. You say, am I equipped to have conversations about race? Am I equipped to deal with racism that may happen to my child and have to advocate for them? Um, And so if a child has to have an experience where they have to part ways with their adoptive parents because um, there's no way to reconcile um, basically their discredit of their full identity. I think that the only comfort in that situation um, is to find community that can support you, often that maybe adoption support groups, adoptee support groups, um, because I think that one thing that doesn't get talked about enough in adoption is that um, to be adopted, you have to first be placed for adoption, which means that your whole life you have this understanding that somebody placed you for adoption. So to some degree or another, you feel a sense of abandonment, um, even if that's not the full story, right? You feel this sense of like, okay, the person who gave birth to me didn't raise me and place me in this situation. And now this situation is going to, this person doesn't recognize me. Um, and so if you're going to adopt transracially, you have to commit to this because that is just a secondary abandonment. The idea of your adoptive parents not accepting your identity and you, to the point of you not being able to have a relationship with them is literally a confirmation of all these kind of internal beliefs that adoptees struggle with, which is that I'm not I'm not lovable or I'm always going to be abandoned or I'm always going to be kind of invalidated and left. Um, and so when an adoptive parent forces an adoptee into that situation, they're basically, um, without maybe realizing it or knowing it, they're reconfirming all these um really lies, but things that adoptees are telling themselves from a young age, right? We know that that's not 100% true. Obviously, adoptees are lovable. They're not always going to be abandoned. We, But we know that these are struggles that they deal with. These are viewpoints that they have of themselves. Um, and so when an adoptive parent fails to, uh, you know, support their adoptee, they're reconfirming those beliefs. Yeah, I in the last few years, I've, and I know there are th- three key words here and I probably have them incorrect <laughs> but as an adoptive parent you are taking on that you that you're going to pro- provide safety security and trust at all costs that nothing gets in the way of you providing those three things to your kids um and that's something that um I've always known I've always said but committing to adopt means a lifetime of providing those three those three things at all at all costs, and so I think um, that means not burying your head in the sand and being open to um, exploring things that you don't understand. Oh, you're right. You're right. Absolutely. But some people just don't know that their heads are buried. Right. right? They don't know that their heads are buried. Yeah. And yeah. And I would say to those kids. Oh, I, when I'm done, I always said that when I'm done raising my own kids, although now I realize that that's never going to be the case, but that I really wanted, wanted to like 
take in kids who have aged out of the system or adopted kids who don't feel like they have a place. Um, because what you're saying is real. And I don't know what the answer to that is to kids who are um, struggling with that. As Isaac says, it's like a secondary rejection, um, you know, uh, other than by some miracle, they find great mentors. I, I, don't, I don't know a, a good answer to that, <laughs> to that question. I think yeah. that's good advice. You have to seek out community, you said earlier, and mentors. Um, so yeah. That's good advice because if they're not going to find it at home. Right. Yeah. Yeah, look for it for themselves. I I just I was thumbing through my notes. I just came across this quote recently. I thought it was really good by Jeanette Weathersbroom. She said, "Adoption is like reading a book with the first few pages missing." Mm, Yeah, I thought that was quite powerful, and and that adoptive parents need to recognize that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, and definitely coincides with what Isaac said too about that part of his life missing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, maybe this next question is geared a little more towards Julie. Of course, you can both answer. And um, But what can parents do if their child isn't interested in participating in cultural activities, events, or talk about race? Yeah, I, um, I think that bringing your kids up in exposure um, and in a way that doesn't make it seem like it's something out of the ordinary. So, um, and I will be the first to admit we were not good at that. <laughs> um, but if I had it to go back, I, I just remember having a confusing and awkward time and then, and then I didn't know what to do. So I kind of froze and did not do the right thing. But Isaac did hit a point where it was awkward for him to like be around all black families because that showed he was different. And then it was awkward for him to be around all white families because that showed that he was different. And I didn't know what to do with that. So I did the most horrible thing. And that was, I just didn't do anything. Like I didn't know (laughs) what to do with it. If I had that to do over again, I wish that for not only my adopted children, but my bio kids as well. And I think that my younger bio kids have received this better because we've learned, but just understanding or or just rate we're growing up in such a, that our family is so diverse and that our community is so diverse that it's um not awkward does that make sense um yeah, yeah. so you know it, it like like so isaac would never have to make the decision of what well, feels really weird for me to go to this cultural event well ho- hopefully the kids would just be so used to that being part of our family culture that it that it's not awkward i um and all of the uh, race issues, one of the things that I keep thinking about uh, recently um, has been since we have opened our minds and our just family culture up to more diversity, trying to learn from our mistakes, um, it's really hard to not believe as a white person that racism exists or that the transracial kids are having trouble when I have friends that look like him. Does that make sense? (laughs) So the more diverse I make my world, the more sensitive I am to my adopted kids because I have a a face for everything now. Yeah, and I really like and appreciate how you acknowledge that you didn't know and have learned Mm -hmm. from that and, and, you know, tried to change for the better. Mm -hmm. A lot of times people just don't like to admit that they're wrong or didn't know anything. They don't like to say that. So it's you feel vulnerable, and I really like that. Well, well, that about you. 
well, I love my son. <laughs> he seems so pretty I, great. <laughs> I told him, um, or I said to someone in an interview recently that my love for Isaac far outweighs my need to be right or any disagreement we'd have or anything that he does differently than I would want him to do this, my, my, my love for him far outweighs any of that. So, yeah. <laughs> nice to have that on recording. <laughs> for that thanksgiving dinner we play that every time you're mad at me <laughs> yeah i know i want to wait just see if i do anything wrong sometime and just replay it yeah <laughs> it'll become your ringtone yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. um well isaac you mentioned your racial identity journey started after your 17th birthday was it yeah. a particular event in your life or a realization that you had? Yeah, yeah, it was a it was a culmination of events. So uh, my mom mentioned earlier that like going to the internet became my outlet to try to figure out uh, race, and so um, for kind of like the year leading up to this, to my seventeenth birthday, I was on you know Tumblr and in other social medias looking at uh, all these kinds of posts, you know. Uh, white people are racist or all white people are racist or um, things about police brutality um, and trying to make sense of them as a as a 16 year old kid who had no context for any of these right um, definitely sitting in a place of confusion on understanding on trying to figure out if all this stuff online is true then what does that mean about my family or my friends you know at this point I had you know two three black friends who were also adopted and so we were all in the same boat um and on my 17th birthday, um, you know, we live in kind of like Amish country. So me and my friends were kind of out late at night um, in that country area going for a walk. Um, and we were kind of walking down this big, long hill. Um, and as we were walking down, there was a cop car at the top of it that started flashing around the lights like it was looking for somebody. Um, and so me and my friends started running, you know, thinking maybe somebody made a noise complaint about us. Um, and as we were running, one of my friends shouts out, it's all right, Isaac's the only one that's going to get in trouble. And, and that, that for me was the realization that the that people around me knew that I was having a different experience than them, um, but that I had not become, like I had never, nobody had ever told me, right? And so I'm sitting in this place with my 16, 17-year-old friends who are saying this comment, and now I know that they know, um, but I was still confused about whether it was real. Um, and so really woke me up and sent me on a journey of trying to figure out, okay, what does it mean for me to be a black person? And I'll say too, like through his teenage years or, or all from the time we adopted him, mm. like we knew racism existed and we knew that Isaac was treated unfairly and that, that, you know, difficult things were happening. I mistakenly though thought that I could be an advocate behind the scenes and protect him. Um, and so I was busy protecting him. And, you know, I tell him stories now about people I confronted or things I did. And he's like, man, I had no idea that you were, <laughs> you were doing that. But the danger in that, like every mom wants to protect their kids, right? Um, right. The danger in this particular situation, though, is he has to learn what it's like to be a black man in America. And in my protecting him on the backside of it, meant that he was never educated. And um, so he had a huge identity crisis <laughs> when, that, when that time came. Yeah. Well, that's kind of a double-edged sword too, right? Because every right. child has the right to know that their parents protect them. 
and would work do anything for them and right. that they are worth protecting and it's it's um quite a pivotal moment in transracial adoptees lives when they realize that they are not white right i'm sure most transracial adoptees remember that moment mm-hmm. and so so I, I I hear what you're saying that you you know I'm a mother as well. So wanting to protect your child is both good and bad. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. It's a double-edged sword. I mean, I was, and he he didn't know this until recently. I was reading all the the mommy black black mommy blogs and all of the <laughs> um, you know all the things to try to learn, but just I wasn't passing the education on to him, um, and. And I don't, I don't know. There's certainly, as you're saying, there's a very fine line there between education and then also protecting them. Right. Yeah. Okay. Can you guys tell us about going back to Fredericksburg when Isaac was younger and the churches that you attended? Sure. Fredericksburg was a much more diverse area than what we have here in Lancaster. Um, and we purposely, even before adopting Isaac, were going to a, um, multicultural, multi-ethnic church. And um, they used to have things like, uh, which were wonderful. They would have once a month uh, Sundays called News Around You. And it would be a different um, ethnicity telling us um, just different things about their race, a different race telling us things about their race. So I learned so much about the Black culture and those News Around You. We would be a potluck lunch and we'd sit around and we would just hear all kinds of wonderful things. So when we first adopted him, that was the environment we were in. So we really didn't have to work very hard to provide exposure for him that way. Um, there were a couple of families, you know, that he, you know, get invited to birthday parties to, you know, a, a black family's home, or there was an older black lady that kind of uh, wanted to be like a grandma mentor to him. So she would always invite him over whenever her family was having a big gathering or whatever to expose him more to their culture. And I just noticed that um, he always would come home kind of uh, angsty from those situations. Um, And I didn't, I didn't ever sense it in a sense of that it was bad for him. I didn't think that at all. I think that it was confusing for him Um, probably due to lack of, my educating him, <laughs> but, you know, and having conversations with him about it, but I just didn't know what to do about it um, and, and how to help him through that. I know the, the lady that the grandma figure who had him for a while did eventually, she noticed it as well. And so she would invite, um, I, I went on to have a child pretty soon after adopting him. So she would invite his sister along sometimes to come as well. Um, and then if it were something special, she would invite me to come with them too. But um, yeah, I just didn't know what to do about it. And then we moved to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, in when he around when he was six to a community, as Isaac said one time pretty soon after moving, why did dad have to get a job in the whitest place in America? So <laughs> so that's what so we moved from having diversity pretty easily to not having it and not knowing how to create it. And then I don't know if you call it laziness, um, using the excuse that it was confusing to him. I was busy having more children, like whatever, all of those things combined, we did not recreate it well once we moved. Do you think it's possible to be successful 
for transracial families to be successful in a white area? Oh, that is the million dollar question. <laughs> that is. <laughs> oh, I, first of all, I wish I, I could say in an ideal world, I wish that transracial adoption didn't have to exist. Obviously in the most ideal world, adoption wouldn't have to exist, but we don't live in an ideal world. And I think that transracial adoptions are healthier than being lost in the system, quote unquote, you know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I do think that they can be healthy. I think that just honesty and understanding from the get-go that you are inviting trauma into your home. And if you are not willing to provide those three things I said earlier at all costs in the midst of trauma, then you're not called to adopt. And that's an okay thing. Like it's completely okay to say, I don't think I can do that because 100% adoption equals trauma coming into your home, even in a wonderful situation. And, um, so to say, can it be healthy? I think it can be if all parties involved understand what's coming in and that the health of the child is at all costs the most important thing. Wow, that's pretty, <laughs> I'm a little <laughs> speechless here. Um, okay, so. I know that inviting trauma into your home just kind of sticks with me. Well, it's true because we all come with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well. When we were adopting our second child and going through our training for that, um, one of the things that stood out to me that's never left me was um, the person teaching the class saying that all adoption starts with death, the death of a relationship. And that just like any other death in our lives, it's a cyclical grief that stays with you forever. Um, and so you may think you've grieved, but then some transition happens in your life and you start feeling that grief again, or you start acting out and, and, or having attachment issues again or whatever, but that that's a cyclical grief that never goes away. And I don't know, that just stuck with me and um, kind of changed that. That's where I was like, yeah, it, it's trauma. It's trauma and trauma never goes away. It's true. And in the, and the same is true for even racially homogeneous families. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think people forget that too. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah no matter if it's transracial or not for that one. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. So lighter. So <laughs> know all about your podcast. So that's fabulous. We're, oh. we're forward to that. But can you give us the scoop on your documentary, the who's and the what's and the where's? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so documentary, Discovering My Identity, uh, coming out uh, October gosh uh, sorry discovering my identity is coming out october 13th will be the first episode it's going to be a four-part docu-series um and it, it features the whole gang it's uh it's it's me both my parents my siblings um everybody's in it uh which i think is really powerful um it covers uh four different chapters uh one is growing up so different perspectives on growing up um, you get to hear some of the quotes that my mom just, you know, said um, in a kind of a deeper dive there, along with my dad and my sister. Um, and, and my brothers are in it as well, just not as much vocal characters. Um, and then episode two dives into the racial identity journey. So it's really when we get deep into the transracial stuff. 
um, in my own journey there. Um, number three is all about healing and fatherhood. So it's all about the transition to becoming a father myself, um, unearthing some of my own feelings around abandonment and being unlovable and in all the areas in which that's impacted my life. Um, for me, something that I think isn't talked about enough, especially in the transracial adoptee community, um, is that there is a lot of hurt when it comes to the loss of our cultural identity. Um, and I think that sometimes can overshadow um, the also hurt that is the fact that we were even placed for adoption and that there is also these tones of like unlovability and abandonment and self-sabotage that run rampant through um, the adoptee community. Um, and so one thing that was really important to me with this project was to kind of fuse both of those things together. Um, people have heard me talk about my transracial adoption journey and my racial identity journey for years now. And it's probably not old news. Um, hopefully I'm getting better at it. Um, but I also wanted people to maybe see um, this new element that I think comes to light the older you get and the more relationships you develop. And then when you become a parent, I wanted to, I wanted to really bring to light these new things that especially came out after I became a parent. Um, and so I, I really discussed just like forgiving my adoptive parents for the things that they didn't know and, and the things that they maybe couldn't know. Uh, I talk about forgiving my birth mother for, for things that she couldn't control. Um, and, and also just dealing with myself and, and dealing with my, my inability um, to trust and connect. And so that's a, that's a big part of episode three. And then number four just talks about the work that we're doing at Identity. Oh, How sounds... cool is this? <laughs> Powerful. Yeah, so excited about that. I'm um, really excited about it. It's going to be really good. Really... Are you going to have a big red carpet event like the Kardashians? <laughs> not, <laughs> not a big red carpet event, um, but we will be doing a screening tour. And so uh, we'll be reaching out in November um, to different agencies uh, and organizations around the country who do want to host a screening in their city. Um, and then we will be having a, a, a live um, streaming uh, for all of our agencies, partners, clients. And so you guys, of course, will be invited to that. Uh, but we'll have a live stream um, on November 4th um, for any of our partners. Again, uh, anybody who's had me come and speak, anybody who uses our identity products. Uh, so it's a chance for you guys to see the full uh, thing a little bit before everybody else. Very cool. All right. Where I want to be. Can we go to your website to watch this or... Yep. So uh, the first episode will be October 13th um, and it'll be available on our YouTube. But if you go to identitylearning.co, uh, there will be a pop up for it, too. Um, and so either YouTube Identity uh, Learning um, or go to the website, Instagram, anything like that. And in addition to that, we're very excited that you're going to be presenting a webinar for FAM titled Inside Transracial Adoption. Mm -hmm. on November 8th at 9 a.m. Central. So can you give us a smidge, not too much, just a smidge of a preview <laughs> about your webinar? Yeah, well, I think this episode is such a good preview of what we're going to talk about too. Um, and, and we kind of draw out some of that rawness here. But uh, first, it's just going to be kind of like that cross dialogue about growing up. So um, I think it's really important to see kind of like the parallel perspectives. And so we'll start there. Um, my mom uh, recently wrote a chapter for uh, my practical guide to transracial adoption, 
um, where she talks about some tactics for connecting with children who don't want to attach or have trouble attaching to you. So my mom will also do a little section um, just about like, you know, what she talked about here, which was like, sometimes you just have to love no matter what and not let your child uh, push you away. And so she's going to talk about that experience for herself. Um, and then we're going to open it up to Q&A. And so we're going to have a fun time. Um, I think it's going to be a vulnerable time. And we really want it to feel like a discussion um, rather than us talking at families um, or to families because we're not perfect. The goal isn't to come in and give you the handbook on, on how to be um, just like us. Um, the goal is that maybe by us talking about the real things that we've been through and what we've learned, um, that other families benefit, but also maybe just feel seen. So if it's a space where families just feel seen, that's also just as valuable to us. Um, because we know that that's also a, a challenge here. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you for all the work that you do for the community. Thank you. Yeah. And I think if, if anyone can pick up just anything little from whatever you're doing is just so important too. There's things they can learn. They can learn a lot from you. Yeah. And I guess when I asked both of you that, what have you been up to these days? You haven't been bored. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> busy. Yeah, we're going. But, uh, yeah. I think it's it's a, it's a calling in both of our lives, uh, something that makes sense for us. And so um, it's exciting to not just do it by myself anymore. Yeah, and I think it's just, I love being able to share that there is a light at the end of the tunnel that, you know, many people are stuck in the darkness of kids that are pushing them away or not knowing what to do or being undereducated, whatever. And that, um, that there is a way out. There is a way to provide trust, um, but between the adopted parents and the adopted child, even when it feels like it's not there. I think we haven't done a lot right. And I don't know if we did it right to get to where we are, but we certainly, um, Isaac, looking at us now as opposed to seven or eight years ago <laughs> we've got a very different relationship so it's good yeah <laughs> well thank you for being here you touched my heart today wow thank you uh, yes yeah. and I, I feel so thankful that you both have the time to meet with little old us today so <laughs> of course thank you guys <laughs> it's an honor most appreciated. And I'm just looking forward to all of those special dates, October 13th for your documentary, November 10th for your podcast. And then again, November 8th for our fall forum. We're starting the day off on our last day. So awesome. we're excited. We will. We'll, yeah, we'll see you then. And thanks again for joining us today. Thank you. We want to let our audience know that foster.minnesota's live webinars are free. Please go to our website, fosteradoptmn.org click on education and check out the workshop section for our fabulous presenters and their webinars. Thank you so much for joining us today for Let's Talk. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to our podcast and tune in again soon.